We live in a culture, a cultural moment where self-reliance is the ideal. For us to rely on ourselves, build our own self-confidence, really strengthen our own self-esteem, that is the ultimate goal. We're told that we're stronger than we think. If we only look inside of ourselves, we'll find this strength that we desperately need. We have phrases that we use, like everything you need is inside of you. You are more powerful than you know. And words like these shape our actions and our beliefs. And if we'll let them, they'll shape our lives. And so it's valid for us to ask, in a culture that is obsessed with self, is it working? It's really interesting when you actually consider what we see around us, and we have more burnout in 2023 than ever before. And so in this culture obsessed with self, we actually come to the end of ourself. And it's fascinating when you think about previous generations, we used to say things like, well, if you hit a midlife crisis, that was kind of like a standard thing. But now the standard thing is everyone has burnout. Everyone's burned out. Everyone's about to get burned out. They've had patterns of burnout. And so when we look at this experiment of life around ourself as the center, I would suggest to you it seems to be failing. This life where we can only rely on ourselves, or there's somehow something that we as human beings can bring to the table that will solve everything is not working. I read this quote by the Dalai Lama who was talking about, he was talking about burnout and he said, you simply need to restore yourself. And I would suggest to you that's really bad advice because you can't restore yourself. I mean, we've tried We go, I'm just restoring myself. I'm trying to take care of myself, and yet it just takes one thing, and then I'm right back where I was. You cannot somehow restore yourself. You can't. You need the one who actually can restore you. You need the one who brings restoration to your soul. True rest. You don't need more of you. You need more of him. This reminds us, and what we see all around us is that if we are the center of our lives, we do not thrive. And so we resist the lies that we hear around that we are the center of everything and instead go, is it possible that in the kingdom of God it is different? In fact, if you look at Proverbs 11.25, we see a very different message around restoration. Proverbs 11.25 says this, The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Now again, notice the culture we're in. We have more than ever before. But are we prospering? I mean, maybe financially we feel like we're prospering. But if you were to look at all the studies about general happiness, it would not appear like as a culture we are prospering. Is it possible that maybe things are out of order in our life? Is it possible that what we're told is the ultimate goal maybe just in fact is not what we were made for? Now, I want to acknowledge that many of us in the room have had a difficult few years. We've had a lot of things thrown on us. And so there's legitimate places in our life where we come to the end of ourselves, where we struggle 
But if we are looking at things as a whole, that struggle is not producing resilience in us. For many of us, we're less resilient. And so it's not strengthening us. It's not putting steel in our spine. Instead, we find every little thing just derails us. Every little thing that happens takes us completely off course. And part of the challenge that we have in our cultural moment and even in our church is that we often, if we're not careful, we live without margin and we live without limits. Let me just remind you, you are a human being with limits. God made you that way. He is limitless. You are not. This is why we did the series on Sabbath. Because we believe that there is a rhythm to which God has cre- through which God has created everything, and we, through Sabbath, acknowledge our limits. But one of the struggles that I have around Sabbath, or frankly, lots of areas in our life where we recognize the need for limits or margin or boundaries, is that we still find ourselves getting pulled into this counter-narrative. And often the very people that need Sabbath the most are the ones that go, you know what, maybe when I'm less busy, I'll do that. You know what, maybe when my life is a little less hectic, then I will create margin in my life. And the stories that we tell in our life, I'm just so busy. Everyone's so busy. And we begin to look at this pattern of putting ourselves as the ultimate arbiter in our life, the ultimate authority in our life. And so often we recognize that things are not functioning the way that they should be, and yet we continue to continue doing the exact same thing. And I want to just remind you, this is not the way of Jesus. There is truth that there is unseen strength in you if you have surrendered your life to Jesus. But that strength is not yours. It's not that somehow because you surrendered to Jesus. Like, I want you to even think about the posture of surrender. It's like getting low before God. That is not a position of strength. It's a position of humility. For us, we get low before God, and he strengthens us. The strength that's inside of us is not our own. It is the Holy Spirit's strength. And so, yeah, there are things in you that you have exactly what you need, and his name is the Holy Spirit. You have what you need You have God. You have access to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. But for so many of us, we know that intellectually. We just don't live like it's true. Our trust and our reliance has to be on God. And yes, we work hard. It's important that we work hard. It's important that what we do, we don't just rest to rest some more. We work and then we rest but we do it in step with God. Not just our own way, our own thing. We go where he's going. We follow where he is leading. And I wanna just remind those of us who would call ourselves followers of the way of Jesus, our trust in God is not, we don't trust God because he promises everything will be good, because he doesn't. And the challenge for some of us is we go, I thought this was supposed to be easier. Who told you that? The the message of Jesus, the way of Jesus is die to yourself and then live. And you go, it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah, dying to yourself, as the name would suggest, is difficult. And so for some of us, we go, okay, well, I thought I was supposed to just get everything was good and the promise was that life would be easy. No, you know what the promise of God is? 
that in the midst of all your difficulty, he's not going anywhere. The reminder for us is he's present and he is close. And I know even right now there are some of you in the room that God seems distant. I promise you he isn't. And I don't know what's going on. There are seasons that we go through, seasons that God seems close and seasons that God seems far. But God tells us, I will not leave you or forsake you. He reminds us that in the midst of all the difficulty, if we'll simply again surrender and trust in him, that he will be close. And it's a counter-narrative against what we hear in culture where the pursuit of happiness is the ultimate goal. I just want to find myself and find everything out there that will make me feel good enough. But the truth is that there will be seasons where your trust in God will be tested, where you'll say, I trust you, God. And then things will happen, and God will be going, do you trust me now? And you're like, I don't know. I'm struggling right now. It's in those moments of difficulty that we actually are tested to see, do I trust in God? But these are beautiful invitations for growth, not things we should avoid. Instead, when we are faced with things that seem difficult, where we wonder, how is this all going to work out? It's opportunities for us yet again to trust God and to be shaped and changed and formed. And the beauty of this in this community is that when we come to the end of ourselves, that we are not alone. We have God. We have the Trinity. And we also have community. And the beautiful thing when it comes to generosity and practicing generosity is that sometimes we get to be the answer to someone else's prayer. So as someone is struggling, going, I don't have enough, and I don't know how this is going to work out, we get to say, I want to be the hands and feet of Jesus because of what he's done for me. And so there are moments that each of us struggle and we wonder, can I trust God? And we get to be God's trust personified. And so this is where we find ourselves. And the reason that I've been talking about generosity over the last few weeks is that it's one of the primary areas that exposes either our trust in God or our lack of trust. And I know that for so many of us, we're like, yeah, there's a, it's an uncomfortable topic and I, I, don't, I don't know, but I, I want you to understand how key it is to our apprenticeship to Jesus. If we want to follow the way of Jesus, the words of Jesus, it is so important for us to actually be willing to confront the areas in our heart, i.e. money, that reveal whether we trust God or not. And I think a big part of the reason that we're so exhausted as a culture is because we are trying to satisfy something in ourselves that we can't do by ourselves. And we're thinking, if I just get enough, do enough, make enough, be enough, then I'll feel good enough, but that is not the way of Jesus. In fact, the way of Jesus is not just working hard for our own benefit or for our own sake. The way of Jesus is working hard also for the sake of others. The Apostle Paul, who came face to face with Jesus and as a result of it, became one of the great catalysts of the early church, planting many, many churches. He came face to face with Jesus and he said, he quotes Jesus' words in Acts and he says this, and I have been, Acts 20, 35, and I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
Now, I'm not sure if you knew that those were Jesus' words before I quoted it. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Maybe you just have heard that around Christmas. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And you're like, man, that's really good advice. Yeah, it's Jesus. <laughs> Pretty good. Pretty wise. And I do think that it, is, it does expose one of the challenges for us because we hear things and the world's like, hey, we learned this new thing. They actually did studies and they're like, we learned that um, people who give generously are happier. And we're like, wow, we had no idea. And they're like, you know what? I think it's in here somewhere. I think, oh yeah, Jesus said it. He reminds us that it is more blessed to give than to receive. These are the words of Jesus, and yet it exposes something in us because it causes us to ask, do I believe that? Do I actually believe it is more blessed to give than to receive? And more than that, am I living like I believe that? And I know some of us in the room were like, well, I am, I'm giving, not financially, but I'm giving my energy. I have nothing left at the end of the week. I have nothing. I'm giving it all away. But again, we're asking ourselves, what are we giving our life away to? What am I giving my energy away to? I'm expending so much energy. At the end of my week, I feel depleted. But am I doing things that are valuable? Am I doing what God's asking me to do? Or am I just... Am I just doing something because I'm supposed to or I feel this expectation? The, the beautiful thing about Jesus' words is that they serve as, as catalysts and also diagnostic for us to actually reflect in our own life. And I would suggest to you, and this would be anecdotal evidence, but I've talked to enough people to say I believe this is true, that for many of us, for most of us that would find ourselves living drained life, drained lives, if we actually audited our time, we actually were relentless in looking at how we spend our energy, we'd find we wasted on a lot of things that don't matter. Because it's really easy to go, I have no time left. And you're like, how, how, much, how much time you spend on your phone this week? You're like, no, no, you know, not that much. And then you look at your screen time, and you're like, maybe more than I thought. You're like, well, how much time did you spend binging, take your pick of your streaming? Well, you're like, well, you know a little bit, scrolling through whatever, infinitely scrolling. And that's not to, that's not to somehow put you down and go like, well, you are the worst. I, I look at my own life and go, you know what, am I spending my energy and my time in a way that is actually giving me life? Am I using the resources that I have? I have finite resources. Am I using them in the way of the kingdom? Am I actually doing that? I mean, for so many of us, it's hard to admit where there are areas of disconnect between what we believe and what we do. And part of my heart in this series, but even for us as a church, is to take God's word seriously, to take Jesus' word seriously, and not just his word seriously, but his ways seriously. Is it possible that the way that we are living and the way that we view our money is actually hindering us from the very life that we so desperately want? And if it is, wouldn't we want to do something about it? In his letter to a spiritual son, the Apostle Paul writes this to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. He says this, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment Tell them to use their money to do good 
They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Now, Paul is writing to his spiritual son, Timothy. But I want to just let you know a peek behind the curtains. He's not just writing and speaking directly to Timothy. Even this week as I was reading it, he's speaking to me. As I'm preparing to teach you, he is saying to all of us responsible for teaching, which is a a high expectation, he says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. This is part of my responsibility is to teach you this, is to teach these words to you to remind you that our trust should not be in our money, but our trust should be in God. Teach those who are rich in this world. And I want to let you know that's you. That's us. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, well, I'm not rich. I'm not a millionaire. One economist said if you make $34,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of the world. Top 1%. You know what that makes us? Rich. That's us. We're incredibly rich, and yet, as I mentioned in a previous week, as North Americans, a lot stingier. We put our trust in our money, not in God. And I know there's people in here that are students, and you're like, well, I, don't, I definitely don't make $34,000 a year, but you are far richer than you think. In, in context of the entire global economy, you have so much more than you realize. Teach those in who are rich in this world to do what? To not be proud. Now, pride in this sense is self-worship, where we elevate ourselves to where only God should be, where we treat our own needs as the ultimate needs, our own thoughts as the ultimate thoughts, our own views as the ultimate views, instead of surrendering them to God. When it comes to our money, we can become prideful and prone to self-worship. We spend our money on ourselves. We view our stuff and our accomplishments as our own. But as Jesus followers, we are called to be humble, not proud. Humility recognizes that what we have and what we've done is only by the grace of God. That what we have and what we've accomplished is because God has enabled us and sustained us and provided for us. Our trust and our reminder of where everything comes from reminds us our trust is in him. And we might say as Christians, no, I live, I live like I trust God. But if we were to look at our bank accounts, would that be true? Our, our tendency and, and, and room for self-deception is huge. We can go, oh, yeah, I do all those things. And then we actually have an, take an honest look and go, oh, maybe not as much as I thought. And I think in my life, and my encouragement would be in your life to have an honest look at our lives and go, do my beliefs actually line up with how I live? And where there is disconnect, is that disconnect, is it decreasing or is it increasing? There is a reality for us. As Jesus followers, this truth that all of our money ultimately comes from, 
and belongs to God. And when we are generous, we are habituating our hearts toward that understanding. He entrusts us with resources to steward them well. As we are generous, we continue to remind ourselves, God, this money is not mine, it's yours. I want to use it how you want me to use it. Paul cautions us against putting our trust in money. And he says, their trust should, should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Now, there, there's a struggle for some of us in the church because we can believe this idea that, that the goal is to, be, is to have nothing and to be really happy about it. And for some of us, that may be what God invites us to. But here we see that God gives us all we need for our enjoyment. So what does that mean? Well, it says that he gives us richly. He richly gives us all we need. It reminds us that God actually delights in giving to us. He enjoys giving to us. He enjoys giving us what we need. And he actually wants us to enjoy what he's given us. This is a reminder that money itself is not the problem. Money itself is not the problem, but as Paul mentions in another verse, it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is not the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is how money reveals your heart. And so if we love money more than we love God, we get ourselves into trouble. It's the root of all kinds of evil. Let me just remind you, we can love the gift. Thank you, God, for how you've gifted us, but never above the giver of the gift. The goal is not the gift. We don't celebrate the gift. Thank you for the gift. We go, God, thank you for how you provide for my needs. Thank you for what you have done. I trust you and I need you. I'm desperate. I'm desperate in my reliance on you. God is the one who gives, and we delight in him above all else. But then Paul says, he reminds us that God is the one who gives us all we need for our enjoyment. And he's reminding us that what we've been given is not just for us. We can enjoy what he's given us, but also in the next verse we find, tell them to use their money to do good. So we enjoy what we have, but then we use our money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. Use your money, but don't just keep it all to yourself. Don't just try to hoard it all to yourself. Money is to be used. And what is the reminder? Money is to be used here to do what? To do good now, notice the next line. It says, they should be rich in good works and generous to those in need. Now, this idea of being rich in good works also reminds us that when it comes to generosity, it's not just about our finances. Rich in good works also applies to our time. This is why serving at your local church, if this is your church, serving at Collective Church matters. Because we don't want to just say that we value it. We, we don't want to just come and take it in. We want to be rich in good works as a community, serving each other, serving those outside of the walls. We want to be a community that is rich in good works. 
And it poses a diagnostic question for us, regardless of what we perceive our resources to be. So maybe some of us go, I, I have lots of money, but not much time. And others go, I have no money, but I have a little bit of time, regardless of our resources. Maybe we go, I have no money and no time. It causes us to ask this question in a diagnostic way. Am I rich in good works? Am I actually rich in good works? Would people that know me, love me, see me, would they believe this to be true about me, that I am rich in good works? And if I'm not, where's the disconnect? Why am I not rich in good works? Is it that maybe I believe that my time and my money is my own? Maybe it's because I struggle with actually trusting God and I go, you know what, I, I, I'll be rich in good works at some point down the road when everything works out perfectly, which will never happen. See, here's the reality for those of us that have surrendered our life to Jesus. We laid down our life, died to ourselves, and, and chose to follow Jesus who lived a life we could never live. And he rose again to give us life. This means that he paid the price for us with his very life. And it means that we are not our own anymore. So for those of us who call ourselves followers of the way of Jesus, or Christians, or Jesus followers, whatever we would, if we've surrendered to Jesus, we know I am not my own. I was bought and paid for with a significant price. As we look at Easter, we are reminded of that reality. And so as an overflow of understanding who we are and who we belong to, we are rich in good works. We are generous because we know who we are. We know that everything that we have is not our own. We know that our life is not our own. Instead, we are following Jesus in every single facet of our life. We're invited to be rich in good works and generous to those in need. Are we being generous to those in need? On a local set, in a local setting, are we meeting the needs that are around us? On a global setting, are we meeting the needs that are around us? I talked a lot about that in a previous week. But Paul looks at this and he's saying to us, we should be rich in good works and generous to those in need. But then he gives us a piece of the how that is really important for us to notice. He says, always being ready to share with others. Always be ready to share with others. Now this speaks to the necessity for both margin in our calendar and margin in our budget. Because how can we be always ready to meet needs if we are so over leveraged and overextended and running at a pace that we can't actually be interrupted in any way? I've experienced these divine interruptions where, where, or divine appointments, whatever you want to call it, where I'm doing things and I have plans and God has different plans for me. Now, if I am so fixated on my time and my schedule and my way, I will miss those. And some of the richest moments in my life is where God interrupted me in my plans and went, hey, I have something better for you. But if I don't have margin... I can't do that. Always be ready to share with others. I want you to know 
not just us corporately, though he has, you individually, God will show up in ways, interrupt you where you are, and present needs to you. And he will invite you. Will you meet them? Will you do what I'm asking you to do? And so we need margin in our life so that we can actually do that. We want to be ready to meet the needs as they show up. At Collective, we use the phrase around giving that we're investing in life change. For those of us that give, it is a reminder that we are investing eternally. We are investing in people's lives being changed. On Thursday, we had Alpha. This is our second time running it. And we have people there that are, that are coming to this place of actually surrendering their life to Jesus. Maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time, working through things. We are able to do that because of people's generosity. We're investing in life change. But according to Paul, it's not just about what we see around us. It's more than that. Paul tells us to be rich in good works, generous to those in need, and always ensuring we're ready to share with others. And when we do this, in verse 19, Paul says, by doing this, they will be storing up their treasures as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Now again, we're reminded here, true life, this is why generosity matters, so that we may experience true life. But we see here that we're storing up our treasures, not just in what we see around us, but in something eternal. And we can struggle with an eternal perspective because so often we're focused only on what we see in front of us and we see all the things around us and we forget that our, our home is not here, though we are here for a, a reason that, that heaven is our home, that being with God is our home. And for those of us who follow the way of Jesus, we have eternity on our hearts, written on the very inside of us, this desire and hope for something beyond what we see around us. And when we give, we resist the urge to make it just about the here and now. We resist the urge to store up treasures just for ourselves and instead store treasures in heaven. This echoes Jesus' words in Matthew 6, encouraging us not to just store treasures here, but instead in heaven, where they last forever. And so these are the words that Paul is saying, encouraging us to live generous lives, to be rich in good works. What do we do with this? Because the reality for those of us that would call ourselves Jesus followers or followers of the way of Jesus is, is we can know this stuff and still live different. Live like, you know what, I believe it, but not enough to do anything with it. And Paul's words serve as a challenge and encouragement. Tell them, so I'm telling you, use your money to do good. We should always be rich in good works and generous to those in need. Always being ready to share with others. And so my challenge for you, we've now done a series, we're completing it, and then we'll head to Easter. But in these four weeks, my challenge would be this week, do good with your money. And maybe you're in the room and you go, in this four-week section, this, this series, I've been doing something. I've been taking steps. I want to cheer you on, keep going, establish a new habit. Or maybe you're in here and you're like, you know what, I have yet to start. Start. 
Use your money to do good. Be rich in good works. Serve others. Serve here. Serve the community that you are in. Do not just be content to be consumers, but instead contributors. Be rich in good works and generous to those in need. We have an opportunity in co-groups in May where we're going to prepare meals and then serve meals to people that are experiencing poverty. And so this will be a significant opportunity for those of us who are in co-groups. And if you're wondering, what's the best way to connect and grow at Collective? It's serving and co-groups. And so our co-groups are going to serve our community, not just say it, but actually do it. But let's not wait for the church to plan things for us to go serve. Let's be people that serve all the time. When there's opportunities that we see, we're ready to meet those needs. Oh, you need something? I can help. For us in our communities, where we are positioned, let's be people that are known to be servants. Always be ready to share with others. I was so struck by these words from Paul as he's writing, always be ready to share with others. Imagine if this was us. Like imagine if each one of us in this room was always ready to share, always. And the question is, is that you? Have you created any kind of margin in your life to be ready to share? Margin in your schedule and margin in your budget. Do you have a budget? Like just some really helpful advice, have a budget. Because what's really interesting is we look at our money and we're like, I just have so little as we go through Starbucks drive through the third time that week. And you're like, you know what, I just have, I have very little money. Do you know what's really interesting and I'll just warn you, it's not a pleasant experience, but it's worthwhile. You look at how you, you actually audit your spending, and you're like, ooh, I spend, like for us, we've had seasons where are like, how did I spend that much at the convenience store or Shopper's Drug Mart? And you're like, what did we get? I don't know. Like you look at your budget, audit your spending. Because honestly, I believe that you probably have more than you think. You look at what you have and you look at where you're spending and then ask the question, am I spending it on things that matter? Am I investing my money in ways that I actually value? Because when we audit our spending, when we actually develop a budget and then we realize there's margin, guess what we're ready to do? Always ready to share with others. Always ready to meet needs. And suddenly when someone's like, I'm really, really struggling and I don't know how I'm going to, and we go, I do. Let me help. Imagine if this was us. And I'm not suggesting just in massive, overwhelming ways. I'm talking about all the little things that add up over time. Imagine if our city and our region knew Christians as actually generous people. Imagine if they saw something different at work in us. Imagine if they saw Jesus who gave everything for us through us because we're saying it's not just about us. This is who we are. And then if you're looking at it going, I don't know how I audit my spending, or maybe that's not really me, I think I kind of know, audit your calendar. Look at how you spend your money and look at how you spend your time. Look at your schedule and go, is my schedule getting me the results that I want to get in my life? 
Like one of the, one of the things that I think is so valuable is our co-groups that meet through the week. And I also know that there are people that go, I'm too busy. I've got lots going on. But the challenge is that you rob yourself of the opportunity of being around other people that are trying to figure this out together and going, let's do this together. You rob yourself of the opportunity to actually learn from each other. See, I think one of the challenges that we have in North America is that we've been told it's your personal relationship with God, and there's truth to that. But if we actually look at the whole Bible and the early church, we'll see it's not just a personal relationship, it's a communal relationship with God. That in community... You know that the early church used to just read massive amounts of scripture? They'd memorize whole books together. They'd share everything. And you know what happened to that early church that shared everything, invited each other into their lives? God continually added to their numbers. And more than that, there was a sense of awe among them. Imagine if that was us. Audit your spending and audit your calendar, and then set a goal and do it. And don't just set like this massive, I'm gonna give 75% of my money away, unless God's saying that. Take a goal and then go, what, what small things can I begin to do so that, I, that I'm shaping my heart and habituating my heart toward an end goal? And if you look at your life, your calendar or your budget, and go, I, I will do that at some point, I promise you, as someone who has lived maybe a little bit longer than some and not as long as others, I've learned it doesn't ever just happen accidentally. And I look at the people in the room, especially that are students, and I think if you could just figure this out now, your life would change and all your friends that are like, man, I'm just so exhausted and worn out, you would look different. And maybe, just maybe, this epidemic of burnout would not be as real inside of the church as it is outside of the church. We want to be ready and live lives that are different in line with the way of Jesus. So teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasures as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life.